Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of California Dreaming. This is the third part of our series on the rise and fall of Theranos and its founder and former CEO, Elizabeth Holmes. I want to thank you for listening to and enjoying this podcast. It is an independent one-woman production, and there are a number of ways that you can help support this show. You can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any platform that you listen to the show on. That gives us a little bit more visibility and helps new listeners find us. And if you would like to go above and beyond and have a couple of dollars each month to spare, you can support us on Patreon. And by us, I mean me and the dogs. You'll gain access to dozens of full-length exclusive bonuses, and you will be helping us keep the lights on over here. This show relies 100% on your donations, which are greatly appreciated. And this week, I would like to thank Susan B., Kathleen M., Deborah M., Chris P., Gwen N., Diane J., Sarah O., Dean S., Tiffany C., Jane G., Sandra P., Ash, Corey S., Nanu W., and Joy N. for joining Patreon or raising their pledge to the next tier or going annual or making a one-time donation through PayPal. And if you don't want to join Patreon and you would like to do the one-time donation thing, you can do so using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. The sources for this episode include the book Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, as well as articles online, which will be credited as needed in the show, as well as in the show notes, where you can find the links to everything. So let's go ahead and get back to this multi-part series of California Dreaming, The Tale of a Girl Boss, and The Silicon Valley of Lies. Last time in part three, we met a couple of friends of Elizabeth's from back in the day when she went to college for a minute, Chelsea Burkett and Sunny Balwani, who were both hired on at Theranos in September of 2009. Chelsea came on board working in client solutions, which a more accurate title would have been client problems. She represented Theranos at two failed Edison demonstrations in Belgium and Mexico, and the demonstrations in Mexico were at hospitals or at a hospital where patients were being tested for the pandemic at the time, the swine flu. Those experiences in part ultimately led Chelsea to say adios to Theranos. The other reason for her abrupt departure had to do with Sonny. He ran Theranos like a dictator with a serious case of Napoleon complex. Pakistani Balwani enjoyed going around provoking and instigating, but fortunately his cologne would arrive about five minutes ahead of him, so employees would have a fair warning that his what are those Gucci man flops were waddling their way up the hall. I wouldn't be surprised though if the truth was that Chelsea was actually developing a secondhand itch from Sonny's chest hair vaulting out of his shirt every time he inhaled and exhaled. She parted ways after about three months of her life that she will never get back. We also got to know a bit more about Sonny, which was part entertaining, part WTF. 
meaning we contemplated WTF Elizabeth saw in Sunny. I don't think we landed on a definitive answer to that question beyond it's yet another sign that she's as unstable as a bag of Edison's. We saw Sunny get involved in a number of verbal altercations with Theranos employees, which Sunny never really ended up on the losing end of, despite being the biggest, hairiest loser in the building. We also met the Walgreens executives who were so sprung on Elizabeth that they hastily signed on with Theranos, ignoring many red flags and warnings from lab consultant Kevin Hunter that there was something fishy going on here. We left off with the Walgreens deal appearing to have the green light to move forward with the Theranos collab, along with a deal with Safeway grocery stores in the works and was also getting the go ahead. I'm going to get back to the timeline where we left off, but I found an interesting article on Forbes.com where they actually interviewed Dr. Richard Fwiz. And seriously, that's how it's pronounced. I looked it up. And so because I found it on the internet, that's the way it is. It has to be true. Remember, he was in part three where he applied for that patent for something that he knew Elizabeth and Theranos were going to need sometime in the future. She eventually sued him and it ended with him retracting his patent and Theranos retracting their lawsuit. It was a little bit of a draw, but I think Richard saw it as a loss. It did end up costing him millions of dollars to try and defend himself before he did the retraction. But I wanted to share a couple of things from that article and then I'll get back to the timeline. The article is entitled Four Startling Things About Elizabeth Holmes from a Psychiatrist Who's Known Her Since Childhood. That psychiatrist is Richard Fwiz. It started off by stating, quote, Before blood testing startup Theranos's founder Elizabeth Holmes began appearing on magazine front pages, she was an emotionally withdrawn child of a once illustrious family being driven by a jealous mother who wanted her daughter to make a name for herself. Richard Fwiz, MD, is a Georgetown-educated psychiatrist, inventor, and former CIA agent who was known to Elizabeth since childhood. As Carrie Rue's book documents, he was the defendant in a lawsuit filed by Theranos in 2011 against Richard and his son, John. After spending $5 million defending the lawsuit, he settled in 2014 in what he called a kill-the-dog agreement in which neither party received anything from the patent. The contributing writer of the article, Peter Cohen, interviewed Fwiz twice, once in October of 2015, so that would be before Theranos fell, and then again in February of 2019, after the fall. But because the tone of the article sounds like Richard was a little bit bitter, I tend to think that a lot of what he said came from the initial interview from back in 2015. There were four takeaways from the article, but I'm only going to share a couple of them. And then one of them is a storyline that I haven't gotten to yet, so I don't want any spoilers right now. I have formed some of my own opinions about Richard back when we discussed him in part three, and I don't necessarily agree with some of the things that he's had to say about Elizabeth here. And there are some things that I do agree with, and even one thing that he said that I've been kind of thinking all along but have refrained from saying because it's kind of a bold statement and I'm not exactly sure where 
the truth lies. So the first takeaway is that Elizabeth was pushed hard by her jealous mom. Richard said that her parents were always trying to elevate their position in the world and that while they were neighbors in Virginia, that her parents were a very political couple and that they tried using their various connections in Washington, D.C. to increase their earnings and wealth. He said that their children were playmates growing up, but the Holmeses were, quote, jealous of our family. I was a physician who had many patents and made money off of them, and I knew Arabic. He said Elizabeth's mom, Noelle, tried to push her daughter to be just like him, essentially programming her to become an inventor and to learn a foreign language. Richard further stated, quote, I'm a psychiatrist and a family practitioner and would tell a father and mother to not treat their child that way. She'll be what she'll be. Don't drive her into something that she doesn't want to do. In the pictures that I have with my family, Elizabeth is withdrawn. She was always pulled to the side and was not naturally emotive as a child. Richard also said that they attempted to pull some strings to get Elizabeth into Stanford because of her performance throughout school being mediocre and she consistently earned low grades. They learned that they would be able to increase the likelihood of Elizabeth being accepted if she was able to enroll in a language program that the school offered during the summers. That's when they placed her in those Mandarin Chinese classes, where she ultimately studied in China, and that's where she met Sunny. According to Richard, Elizabeth hated being in China, but her mom refused to allow her to give up and to come home. That Elizabeth would call, really upset and crying and complaining that the people are dirty, the hotel is filthy, and that she wanted to come home, but her mom told her to quit complaining and to just do what she needed to do. And then Richard said something that I found interesting. That Elizabeth's dad used his influence to land a good job at Enron, and he said that he was the vice president. I talked about this at great length, I believe, in part one, that Enron filed for bankruptcy and ultimately collapsed. Of this, Richard stated, when he came back to Washington after Enron failed, he was broke and came crying to us. He had no money. I was living in a new house a few blocks away, and I told him he could live in our first house rent-free. I will come back to the Enron thing in just a minute. There are some things about what Richard says here that I'm not exactly sure are true. And if the contradictory information that I have helped me form my opinion came from John Kerry Rue's book and his tireless work researching, fact-checking, and interviewing people for it, then I'm most likely going to believe what he has to say and that that is likely an accurate and true version of the story. Also based on Richard's actions detailed in Kerry Rue's book, I find him to have some serious character flaws. And just because he's a doctor and a psychiatrist and a patent owner and an inventor and a millionaire doesn't automatically mean he's a stand-up guy or that he gets a pass to act like an asshole. The word used to describe him was megalomaniac. And my overall impression of him is that he's vindictive and malicious. And ironically, in some of the same things that he had to say about Elizabeth, it's a thing probably steeped in insecurity, along with the side of narcissistic personality disorder, delusions of grandeur, 
with some underlying self-loathing that he probably worked hard to overcome or at least look like he did. So first, Richard said that Elizabeth's mom was jealous of him and his wife, Lorraine. I don't know if that's exactly true or not. These women were friends and Lorraine seemed to enjoy spending time with Noelle and bringing her and her kids along on lavish trips and shopping excursions. And the women stayed friends for a long time, all the way up until the Fwizzes found out about Elizabeth going into the biomedical technology field and launched her own business without consulting Richard first. That's when the relationship between the women crumbled. To me, I felt like that if anybody was jealous, it was Elizabeth's dad, Chris. Again, I don't know if that's the case or not, but we know that Chris had made no secret of the fact that he didn't like Richard. And that could have stemmed from him being jealous. But because I've arrived that I'm not a Fwiz fan either, it doesn't necessarily mean it was because of jealousy. It could simply be because Richard is a garbage person who couldn't be trusted. That's plenty of reason to not like somebody. Richard then accused the Holmeses of using their Washington, D.C. connections to increase their wealth. Um, doesn't almost everybody in some way, shape, or form tap friends, acquaintances, or co-workers for recommendations or assistance? Getting a job, writing a letter of recommendation, putting in the good word... I don't have anything against anybody helping anyone get ahead in this world as long as people are grateful and willing to reciprocate in whatever ways she or he can and they do their best if they get an opportunity. There's absolutely nothing wrong with helping each other out in life. If Richard were to say that he got where he was in life 100% all on his own, I'd call BS. But I do see that any help that Richard would ever be willing to extend coming with a cost. My mom is like that. People like that are willing to help, but be prepared to basically sell your soul for that help or face the wrath. We know the links that Richard would go to in order to exact revenge for anything that he saw as a slight against him. I talked a lot about this in part two and the things that he did. Richard also said in this interview in Forbes that Elizabeth's dad used his connections to get the very first venture capitalist to invest in Theranos when she first founded the company. And like I said, I don't see that being that big of a deal either. You're not holding a gun to anybody's head to invest in something. And as their label insinuates, they want to capitalize. But Richard here, it looks like he's wanting to make some kind of point like the Holmes family wouldn't have been able to do or achieve anything without relying on help from others. But for me, it's neither here nor there. I think you should use whatever advantages are out there for you. In the interview, Richard also stated that the jealousy was all about him, that he's a doctor with patents, he has money, he has the ability to speak Arabic. And he said that Elizabeth's mom pushed her and programmed her to be just like him. Now, that's something that I think has a measure of believability behind it. To what extent, I'm not sure. But I didn't even really see or know 
or think about the parallels when I first read about Richard. All I knew is that he was mad when he found out that Elizabeth went into the same field of biotechnology that he was in and didn't turn to him for his wealth of knowledge, which is why he went on to apply for that patent that led him to being sued by Theranos some years later. It is an interesting theory to ponder. Did Elizabeth set out to be on the same path as Richard? There are those correlations. Both Richard and Elizabeth were inventors, sort of. At least Elizabeth was aspiring to be one. They both worked with medical devices, and they both spoke at least one language in addition to English. And it's perhaps the reasoning behind why Elizabeth's parents pushed her to go to Stanford to work on earning her PhD. Remember, one of the first things we talked about when we started this series was an incident that occurred over winter break after Elizabeth's first semester at Stanford. She announced to her family that she was dropping out of school, after which her father folded up a piece of paper. He flew it over to Elizabeth and it had the letters PhD written on it. That's the one big thing that she didn't pattern herself after when it came to Richard. He had his PhD and she didn't even come close. Perhaps Elizabeth picked up on Richard's ways of conducting business and how he was so cutthroat and underhanded. And maybe she admired that in him. After all, it doesn't take a PhD to be a shady, conniving entrepreneur. And while Theranos was the house that Elizabeth built, it was made of cards. Richard said that he didn't think Elizabeth's mom should have pushed her to do something that she didn't want to do. And that the pictures that he had of Elizabeth taken with his family showed that she was withdrawn and not emotive. In other words, there was this lack of any kind of emotional affect. When I read that, it kind of got me thinking. When you take a step back and look at the entire portrait of Elizabeth's life, it's kind of a hodgepodge of a whole bunch of not really accomplishing anything meaningful at all. The first chapter in Carrie Rue's book is called A Purposeful Life. That is allegedly the value that Elizabeth's parents wanted to instill in her. But if you take what Richard said, that she was a mediocre student at best, there might just be something to that. Many of us who have listened to the podcasts on this case have heard the story about Elizabeth running track when she was in, I think, middle school or something like that, and she ended up coming in dead last. Like it was so dead last that apparently the other kids laughed and made fun of her. And Elizabeth was so humiliated that she decided she was never going to come in last ever again. And that's just kind of a, another example of Elizabeth's mediocrity. Richard also said that her parents took steps to increase the chances of her getting accepted into Stanford by sending her to that Mandarin Chinese class. And if we go back to part one, we know that they managed to get her into that program that was really supposed to be for current Stanford students. But because Elizabeth had been working with a Mandarin tutor ahead of that, and because she managed to impress with her ability to speak Chinese, an exception was made for her and she was allowed to enroll. 
So if Elizabeth's parents were under the impression that getting her into those classes increased the likelihood of her being accepted into Stanford, then we can assume that they had some concerns about her chances to get in based purely on her academic performance, her extracurriculars, her SAT scores, things of that nature. That perhaps her parents feared that she wasn't enough on her own to get in because she was a mediocre student. Also, according to Richard, Elizabeth tried to quit that Mandarin program in China, but her mom flat out refused to allow her to come home, telling her to just get with the program. If he is to be believed, then that is yet another thing Elizabeth tried to drop out of. We also know that once she got into Stanford, she immediately wanted to drop out. And I say immediately because she was only one semester in, during which Elizabeth admittedly was not attending classes. And I would bet that she probably never wanted to apply at Stanford at all, much less go, because perhaps her mediocrity would surely carry over into college and she would just be embarrassing herself and wasting her time and money. Yeah, there are professors who have sung her praises that she was so exceptional and brilliant and unlike any other student, blah, blah, blah. But if Elizabeth Holmes has taught us anything, it's that it doesn't take high achievement in school to be able to hustle. If she was able to beg, borrow, and steal her way to being the CEO of a $9 billion company, she'd be able to beguile a handful of Stanford teachers, no problem. And let's face it, most of the people up to this point that Elizabeth has worked her magic on are men. From the college professors to the Theranos board members to the venture capitalists to the corporate and pharma executives. And dreamers, I by no means want to take anything away from truly strong and powerful women who have legitimately made their way to the top and did not rely on beauty and feminine charm to get there. And I also do not want to take anything away from strong, powerful women who use whatever tools they have in their arsenal as long as they do it with integrity. But let's face it, Elizabeth had everybody fooled for the better part of 15 years. She had to have done something to get those rich, powerful men to not even concern themselves with all of the troubling things that they should have been concerned with. But instead, they just took Elizabeth at face value because she was so well-spoken and so easy on the eyes. And when we finally get to the time that Theranos was founded in 2003 until it went defunct in 2018, in those 15 years, when you break it all down and you take everything away and peel away all the layers, Elizabeth Holmes accomplished nothing. And that's the common theme in her life since childhood. And now we know she's been convicted of wire fraud and she's looking at some possible serious time in federal prison. And that's what I meant when I said Elizabeth really hasn't done anything meaningful or purposeful, as it were. As for the statement that Richard made about Elizabeth's dad, Chris, using his connections to land a great job with Enron, 
When I brought up Enron previously, I was getting the impression that there was this idea going around the internet and maybe around some of you that because Enron had collapsed in one of the biggest, most dramatic downfalls in history, that there was something shady about Chris being linked to the company. In Carrie Rue's Bad Blood, it's clear that Chris Holmes joined Enron at the beginning of 2001. And if he used some of his connections to help him land the job, as Richard Fwiz had stated in his interview, then more power to him. This was just about eight months before Enron hit its all-time peak valuation, a little over $90 a share, and it was projected to reach as high as $130 to $140 per share. But in just three short months, Enron's stock dwindled to $0.26, and the company filed for bankruptcy that December of 2001. So all told, Chris Holmes worked there for less than a year. And contrary to what Richard said in his interview about Chris being the vice president, I believe that to be untrue. And not only do I believe that to be incorrect, in the same breath, Richard said that Chris came home to him broken crying. There is no way that Chris, knowing what we know about how he felt about Richard, would go crying to him. I don't believe it for a second. In Carrie Rue's book, it was said to be more like Chris asking him for advice and whatnot. And both his book and the article in Forbes brought up the house that Richard offered to Chris and Noel to live in for free. However, Richard failed to say in his interview that Chris turned down his offer. And I have read in various articles online that Chris Holmes lived in a house that Richard Fuzz owned for free. This is not true. He turned it down. But as the story has made its way over the internet, I think Richard has perpetuated this false narrative of him allowing Chris Holmes and his family to stay in his home for free. In addition to that, if Chris Holmes had been the vice president of Enron, would he really have come back to Washington, D.C.? completely, totally flat broke? I mean, it's possible, but we do know that many of the executives at Enron sold all of their stock in the months leading up to the collapse. And the vice president would have most likely been in on that unless Chris Holmes had a measure of integrity, which to me, it kind of sounds like he does. And maybe he did go home flat broke. I can't imagine that he didn't start saving some money from his salary during his time there. But again, I'll never believe that Chris went crying to Richard Fliz. The last thing I want to talk about from the article is that Richard pointed out that whenever there was a time that Elizabeth was asked specific pointed questions involving science, she tended to divert the topic and she would usually bring up her family history and family members of the past. And in this instance, I tend to agree with Richard though he is pretty harsh and it sounds like a lot of sour grapes when the article stated that he had a dim view of her business and technical skills and viewed her as a con artist. As he said, first of all, Theranos' business makes no sense. Medical testing is not a profitable business and Theranos is selling tests at below market prices. Also, the girl has no scientific education. She is not very intelligent. She is more con than substance. She was interested in how do you con people, not how do you win with substance? And when 
anybody ever challenged her about her scientific or technical knowledge or acuity for business, she would start talking about her family members, her great-great-grandfather, who was a surgeon, and the Christian R. Holmes General Hospital in Cincinnati that's named after him, and that he married the daughter of the Fleischmann Yeast Company founder, Charles Fleischmann. So because Elizabeth had no experience in business or science or biomedicine or biotechnology or anything really relative to Theranos, she would circumvent the tough questions by referencing her family in an effort to establish credibility for herself and Theranos. I also tend to agree that Elizabeth was and is not very intelligent, at least not in the company she tried to keep and in the field that she tried to make a name for herself in. To me on the inside, while at Theranos, Elizabeth acted like a tantrumy brat who would whine and complain when she didn't get things her way. On the outside, however, her public persona to the media and on TV, she just managed to present well. Remember, it was all a show. Her non-blinking eyes, her voice, her black turtlenecks and sleek suits. This was a woman who used to apparently wear Christmas sweaters to work year-round, so I'm just saying. She learned what she needed to do to at least look the part. There is one last thing in the article that I want to go over, but I'm not quite there yet in the series, but we are getting close to it. And I may come back to this Forbes article if necessary. I might not have to, but I have it bookmarked, so just in case. All right, we're going to get back now to where we left off in the Theranos timeline. You know, and I know, and basically everyone at Theranos knew that Elizabeth and Sonny's egos were writing checks that their bodies couldn't cash. And they got to the point where they really stepped in it because they just inked deals with two major corporations under false pretenses. Executives at both Walgreens and Safeway have been told that Theranos' proprietary blood testing machines were capable of performing hundreds of diagnostic tests on a single nanotainer of blood. However, in the end, the Edison was only ever capable of performing a handful of tests, and even those are questionable. The Edison literally turned out to be the Ford Pinto of the blood testing systems out there. Except the Pinto was a little bit ahead, just by a nose, due to the fact that it was capable of bursting into flames. So at least the stupid car had enough self-awareness to know that the world would be better off if it would just self-destruct. I mentioned in part three that the type of testing that the Edison was capable of was called immuno assays, assays for short, thank goodness, right? Using antigens to detect things in the blood. I looked up the tests that are conducted using this type of technology, and they are conjunctivitis, campylobacter, which is like a really bad diarrhea caused by undercooked poultry, C. diff, which is a colon infection, chlamydia, colorectal cancer, coronavirus, dry eye disease, H. pylori, which is a stomach infection, inflammatory and autoimmune diseases, influenza, 
lactoferrin, which is an iron binding protein that helps defend against viruses and bacteria usually found in milk producing mammals. Legionella, which is a bacteria found in small droplets of water that causes Legionnaire's disease or Pontiac fever, which are types of pneumonia. Lyme disease, mono, osteoporosis, pregnancy, RSV, which is a respiratory infection, streptococcus pneumoniae, which is a bacteria that causes pneumonia and meningitis, and strep throat. In John Kerry's book, he mentioned that the assay tests that were conducted also include common tests like vitamin D levels and prostate cancer, while some other articles I read said that the testing can also measure drug levels and hormone levels and markers for certain types of cancer. So that is basically the limitations of this type of testing, which is all the Edison was able to do, the assays. In a March 2019 article on refinery29.com, it asked a question that many of us wondered when we first heard of this Edison, Elizabeth, and Theranos. What is all the hype over this machine all about? What brought the company to reach its peak worth of $9 million at one time? And what was this concept of running an entire menu of tests with a tiny blood sample and being able to do so at a fraction of the cost of traditional blood testing? Elizabeth played on people's emotions and tugged at the heartstrings, with one of her selling points being the ability to improve health screening to a point that it would actually save lives and increase longevity. Creating a world in which we never have to say goodbye too soon. Imagine grandma and grandpa living to see 150 years of age. You know, crap like that. One small problem. The Edison didn't work. It never did, and it never would. The Refinery29 article said that it's complicated as to why it didn't work. And even with all the stories out there about it, we would never really be able to get to the bottom of all the reasons. I think it's safe to say that the technology simply doesn't exist right now. It might someday, and maybe then history may tell a different story about Elizabeth being a visionary or whatever. So yeah, I'm going to start working on a space pod that travels so fast around the Milky Way that it will actually slow time down for me. And then when I get back to Earth, you all will be dead and I would have aged only a couple of years. I'll get started on next week. Send your venture capital money by clicking the fund my bullshit idea button on my website and you guys could start calling me a visionary too. Even experts in biomedical devices couldn't figure out how the Edison was supposed to work based on the information available regarding Theranos patents and on their website. So even if leaders in the field had no idea what the Edison was actually supposed to do and how it was allegedly doing it, then it's probably not groundbreaking. And it was in this article where I learned of the menu. Not only did it list more than 240 different tests that the Edison offered, it also had a price next to it. 240 menu items all in alphabetical order. It used to be on the Theranos website, which no longer exists, but there is a link to the menu and I'm sure the whole website is on the Wayback Machine. 
but the menu is astounding. I'll post a link to it when this episode goes up, but I'll share some of the tests that Theranos claimed that it would run and the cost. The headline of their webpage reads, unparalleled transparency in bold letters at the top with the image of a child being seen by a doctor. And then it says, you wouldn't go to a grocery store that didn't have price tags. Why should getting a blood test be any different? At Theranos, our prices are always online and available. They are a fraction of other labs. And if you have insurance, they are often less than the copay. It's all a part of making lab testing as accessible as possible. Some of the tests on the menu include adenovirus for $29.15. And they have a variety of drugs listed all the way through in alphabetical order, such as amphetamines, benzodiazepines, cocaine, marijuana. It goes on and on. Other basic tests include anemia for $27.64, basic health for men, $54.30, basic health for women, $41.78, Blood typing, $4.06. Various cancer antigens, $14.16. Carbon dioxide, $3.33. Chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV, $40.51. Cholesterol, $2.96. Diabetes assessment, $18.39. Electrolytes, $4.78. Hepatitis A, B, and C testings that range from $5.56 to $117.96. Insulin, $7.78. Iron, $4.41. MMR immunity, $27.85. Mumps, $8.88. Potassium, $3.13. That's just an example. I'll, like I said, I'll post the link to the Wayback Machine image of this menu. I also want to say that the vast majority of the items listed on the menu. Many of them are quite routine, like glucose and cholesterol, but they need a completely different type of lab testing, and it's testing that the Edison is not capable of. So even if the Edison somehow managed to work mechanically on what it was capable of, it still couldn't do what Elizabeth had promised it could do. But testing aside, the machine was a clusterfuck of problems inside of it. Pieces of the Edison would just fall off, the cartridge door wouldn't close, And remember the heaters that I told you about in the last episode? Those were incapable of keeping the temperature exactly where it needed to be in order for it to function at all. And I definitely do not want to take away anything from the people who worked their fingers to the bone trying to get this machine to work. The scientists, the engineers, the chemists, the designers. Elizabeth and Sunny hired legit people to do this work. And they did everything that they could to try and figure out how to get this thing to do what was being promised. Unfortunately, they were constrained to the very tight and specific parameters from which Elizabeth was unwilling to deviate from, not even in the slightest. And if anyone took issue with it or brought up concerns, they were either fired or they resigned. I have said throughout this series that I believe Elizabeth had the mindset that if she kept willing it to happen, if she pushed and forced her staff to make it happen, that someday they would get there. After 15 years and hundreds, if not thousands of employees and billions of dollars, it was all for naught. Even though the tests that were being run on the Edison 
were giving out faulty results or no results at all, Elizabeth continued to repeatedly lie to everybody, potential investors, companies, venture capitalists, and the media, insisting that Theranos was changing the world with groundbreaking technology. She never indicated that there was ever a problem with the testing or the results, with the exception of giving out a bunch of excuses. She never admitted to the truth. What Elizabeth did need was a whole other device that was capable of conducting more than just the assay test, especially at that time, towards the end of 2010, when Edison's were fixing to go to market inside Walgreens stores. She hired a new engineer, Kent Frankovic, and he was given the job of designing a brand new Edison with the ability of running a wider array of blood tests. Kent graduated from Stanford with a master's in mechanical engineering, and he had worked at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, where he was part of the team that built the Mars rover. Once Kent was working at Theranos, he brought in a friend from NASA named Greg Bainey, who had left NASA to work at SpaceX for a time. So these guys are basically brilliant and probably amongst the best Elizabeth could have hoped for when it came to getting the Edison functioning how she wanted it to the specs that she demanded. And she treated the two of them very, very well. In fact, Carrie Rue stated in his book that for a time they were her favorites. And basically they had free range with the budget and company credit cards to get whatever they wanted or needed to make her fantasy a reality. And the machine that they were going to create was no longer going to be referred to as the Edison. Instead, they called it the Mini Lab. Again, another indication of what Elizabeth refused to allow for any flexibility in design. The size. It had to be small. In the end, she didn't want Mini Labs in stores. She wanted them in people's homes, so they had to be small and sleek like a George Foreman grill or a Keurig. And by the way, the official stylization of the word Minilab is for all the letters to be in lowercase, except for the L in lab. So it's lowercase M-I-N-I, capital L, lowercase A-B, just like iPhone and iPod. Those words start with the lowercase I, followed by one capitalized letter, and then the rest lowercase. I'm not sure if anybody picked up on that, but it's another thing that Elizabeth lifted from Apple. So the problem was, of all the types of testing techniques that are out there, the tests that the Edison was doing were feasible to an extent when it came to scaling it down in size. To an extent. Because, as I said, it never worked right. The tests that Elizabeth wanted to do with the mini lab would require it to have many more doohickeys inside. And what do I mean by doohickeys? Well, as listed in Bad Blood, the Edison had one laboratory instrument inside it, a photomultiplier tube. The mini lab would need the photomultiplier with three additional instruments, a spectrophotometer, a cytometer, and an isothermal amplifier. So 
In other words, doohickeys. And guess what? None of this technology is new. The spectrophotometer was invented in 1941 by Arnold Beckman. You may have heard of the company that he founded, lab equipment manufacturer Beckman Coulter. Fun fact, from the time that I was born until I was about 12 or 13, my dad worked for Beckman. At the time, it was called Beckman Instruments. And when my mom's brother came over from Vietnam, he helped him get a job there too. My dad had been looking for a job after he got back from Vietnam with my mom, and so he went to apply at Beckman, which was located in Fullerton, California. And when he walked in, just purely by coincidence, the head of the company at that site was shipmates with my dad during World War II, and he pretty much hired him on the spot. But anyway, a spectro... Hush, quiet! Sorry, there was a barky dog outside. So anyway, a spectro photometer beams light through blood, and based on how much of that light is absorbed, things like cholesterol, glucose, and hemoglobin levels can be measured. The cytometer was invented in the late 1800s, and it counts blood cells and can diagnose anemia, cancer of the blood, HIV, among other diseases. Isothermal amplification has something to do with DNA, RNA, and enzymes in order to detect specific diseases. So out of these doohickeys, the photomultiplier tube that was used in the Edison is the smallest. And I'm only guessing here because I can only see them on images online. And usually there's, you know, somebody's hand that is manipulating the device. So you can kind of get an idea of what size these things are. But the photo multiplier in the Edison is the smallest. And it looks to be about the size of a soda can, soda, pop, Coke, fizzy drink, whatever you all call it from where you're from. Maybe it's the size of a tall can. It fits into an Edison. An isothermal amplifier appears to be about the size of one of those label makers. You know, when you type in what you want the label to say and then you print it and it feeds out the size and you peel and stick it. One of the larger size one of those. The spectrophotometer looks like it ranges in size from about a gaming console to an average-sized inkjet printer. The largest of these instruments is the cytometer, and it appears to be about the size of a mini-fridge. So I don't think it is likely that anyone anytime soon is going to be able to squeeze all of that into a machine the size of a toaster oven. As I stated, none of these instruments are anything mind-blowing. They've been around for many, many decades and are commonly used in labs everywhere, every day. So Elizabeth wasn't a visionary in that sense. What she was banking on was what we heard as part of her mantra, changing the world, shaking up the lab industry, never having to say goodbye too soon. And to her, what that meant was the average person being able to have easy access to blood testing, eliminating the need for tubes of blood to be drawn from a patient and sent out to a centralized lab, to being able to head to Walgreens and to get the same test done for much less blood, for much less money. And eventually to bring that mini lab all the way home so you don't even have to leave your house. 
That is what would have set Theranos' technology apart from everything else out there if she could get it to work. In Carrie Rue's book, he brought up an existing portable mini blood analyzer called a Piccolo Express. He said it looked like a mini ATM machine, and when I looked it up, he wasn't wrong. It's actually kind of cute. It's about the size of a small coffee maker. It is able to perform 31 different blood tests, and results would be printed out in about 12 minutes. The patient could get about six different tests completed with no more than four drops of blood, and these would be the most common blood tests that people require on a regular basis. The mini lab that Elizabeth envisioned would be capable of running many times more tests than the Piccolo Express. It would set her machine apart by leaps and bounds if it worked. Greg Bainey started off by studying the various types of instruments out there that I mentioned above by purchasing ones that were already on the market, you know, the doohickeys, and going from there. His plan was to try and miniaturize them with reverse engineering. He wanted to take the whole thing apart and study it in order to figure out how it worked. And instead of attempting to build their own, he decided what they would do was take instruments that were already on the market and then build this amalgamation of all of them put together. Once he had a prototype that worked reliably, then they would concern themselves with making it smaller. The way Elizabeth had been doing things up to that point, worrying about size first and then trying to fix all of the bugs from there, was essentially working backwards. And to him, it was no wonder that Theranos was going into year eight of not being able to get the blood testing machine to work reliably. But when Greg discussed his plan with Elizabeth, she shut it down. For her, the only thing that mattered was size. I guess she likes her men the way she likes her machines, right? I'm just kidding. That's so gross. <laughs> that was a terrible joke. But I really meant, you know, because Sunny's really short, right? Anyways, another thing about Greg that Elizabeth loved was the fact that he came into work on the weekends. But it had less to do with Theranos and more to do with the fact that he was having some turmoil in his personal life. And he was using work as a much needed distraction. He was going through a pretty tough breakup. So to keep his mind busy, he'd come to work. And we all know how Elizabeth just loves people that are working all day and all night and every day on Saturdays and holidays and on days that don't even exist. She saw it as a reflection of Greg's commitment and his devotion to his work. So she told him that she wanted him to get his friend Kent to come in on Saturdays too. But Kent was like, no way, man. Weekends are all mine. I am not coming into work. Screw you and screw Theranos. It really made Elizabeth unhappy. And again, she just was not really all that in touch with reality. She wasn't in touch, period. Having this feeling like people didn't need to have any sort of balance in their lives. Also, by the way, if you're in our Facebook discussion group, and if you're not, you might want to know that I posted a video that shared an audio clip of an interview that Elizabeth gave on a podcast where she slipped into her real voice momentarily before quickly catching herself and going back to the deep voice that she's known for. So there was an occasion when Greg actually caught Elizabeth once when she accidentally said something to him in a more natural sounding woman's voice. 
While he did think her deep voice was kind of strange, he figured that because she was working in a traditionally man's world, that in order to be taken seriously as a person in technology, this is part of what she felt like she needed to do. There was another thing that Greg came to discover that really took him by surprise. He had become friends with chemist and board member Gary Frenzel. While Gary was kind of a large, disheveled, unkempt gentleman, I mean, Greg said that he wore tattered up baggy jeans, big, huge t-shirts and Crocs. And no hit on Crocs because I do know that those shoes have a dedicated fan base. But I also know there is a segment of the population that would not be cut dead wearing a pair. And when I worked with children, I loved them in wet, dry, sand, wood chips, socks, no socks. They worked pretty much through everything. They were easy to put on, easy to take off, easy to clean. They dried fast. But anyway, even though Gary was a little frumpy frump, Greg found him to be absolutely brilliant. One of the most brilliant people at Theranos. So you can't judge a man by the Crocs that he wears. Well, there was one day when Greg and Gary were headed home for the day. And as they were talking, Gary sort of whispered, that Elizabeth and Sonny were, you know, boinking. Greg immediately thought that the whole thing was totally improper for the workplace. Not the workplace gossip, because, you know, gossip. But boss one and boss two having relations. And it wasn't so much that they were doing it, it was the fact that they were keeping it a secret. In fact, Greg thought it was a thing that every employee should be made aware of. After finding out this juicy tidbit, Greg first worked on getting the image of Elizabeth getting all hobnobby with good old chest hairs and gold chains. After that, it really caused him to begin to question everything about Theranos and what kind of company that they had going on here. He had already seen some weird stuff, but this not being disclosed was not just keeping a secret, it was perpetuating a lie. And working for a dishonest company that lacked integrity was a huge problem for him. And that's, we know, something completely foreign to Elizabeth. And then in early 2011, just about four or five months after Greg Bainey was hired on, Elizabeth went next level nepotism and hired her little bro, Christian. He apparently finished school back in 2009, but didn't have any sort of credentials in the field of laboratory testing to have been named Theranos' director of product management, yet there he was. He might as well have been hired to stand on the corner outside of Theranos spinning a sign for all Elizabeth cared when it came to qualifications. No hate on sign spinning either, because I know I'd be smacking myself upside the head with that thing even if I tried. But it isn't exactly brain surgery either. All that mattered to Elizabeth was that she would be able to trust him implicitly. Christian did have the same big blue eyes that Elizabeth had but I'm fairly sure he blinks and her voice is a number of octaves deeper than his. I'm kidding, but I actually don't know that. (laughs) I I don't think I've heard his voice. But they had very little in common beyond that. Of him, Carrie Rue wrote, Christian was a handsome young man with eyes the same deep shade of blue as his sister's. But that is where the similarities between them began and ended. Christian had none of his sister's ambition and drive. He was a regular guy who liked to watch sports, chase girls, and party with friends. 
After graduating from Duke University in 2009, he worked as an analyst at a Washington, D.C. firm that advised corporations about best practices. How ironic, right? I'm just going to say this right now. I do not like Christian Holmes, not one single bit. He is the kind of trifling, apathetic, privileged loser that just gets to skate by in life because he's a spoiled little asshole that gets everything handed to him. And this is my opinion, but I find him to just be a shitty person. And I don't know. I feel like there are people out there who don't get a fair shake. And then there's people like Christian who everything just comes so easy to. And they just don't deserve it, you know? It'd be another story if Christian worked his ass off and earned his. But no, he is the poster asshat for privilege. I mean, I don't much like Pakistani Balwani either, but at least he's fun to crack jokes about. Christian Holmes, he's just such a dick. It's not even funny. Well, maybe it is a little bit. I just can't stand people like him. And it's not just about coming from a family with money. In fact, we know there are some times when the Holmeses struggled. But I didn't get the sense that they ever did without And at least on Elizabeth's part, there were some issues with some deep insecurities as she grew up. And having means as a kid doesn't necessarily alleviate that. Anyway, when Christian was hired on at Theranos, and remember, he's the director of product management. When he got there, he didn't do jack shit. Most of his time was spent looking at articles on ESPN.com, Yahoo Sports, NFL.com, whatever websites with all the sports news. And do you want to know how he went about doing this without looking conspicuous? Because we all know that Sunny Sunshine is sitting up in his little captain's booster seat in his little command center, looking at his little spy cameras, looking over everybody's cubicles to see what everyone was doing and what they were looking at on their computers. So what Christian's little punk ass would do is copy and paste the text from those articles and put them into a compose email window. So when Sonny would be looking over everybody's shoulder, it would appear as though he was reading company emails. Can you imagine just sitting there in some cushy, cushy office in the Silicon Valley getting paid some ass backwards, ridiculous salary to do absolutely nothing? It just really gets me cheesed off. Okay, and you know, I almost feel like I'm getting overly bent out of shape over this. I just get tired of the privilege. And not just the privilege, but taking advantage of it and taking it for granted. A lot of us come from money. I can't sit here and say that I had it rough growing up in that sense. But I still worked from the time that I was 16 with the exception of a couple of years when my daughter was in school. My daughter is an adult now, and she works, and she works hard. Can you guys hear the snorting sounds that Fred is making right now? He's over there, rolling around on his back, doing some crazy snorting and grunting. I'm just going to have to ride this out for a few minutes. He won't shut up. Okay. I think he's over it. 
where was I? Oh yeah, so I was talking about the problem that I had with privilege and working and getting jobs that you don't deserve. Maybe it's one of those things that stems from issues that I have with my mom who, you know, she really wanted to get out of Vietnam and she found my dad. He's much older, wealthy, American, and she never had to or wanted to lift a finger ever since. And frankly, I think she's paying for it now with my dad having died 15 years ago and decades of doing close to nothing but sitting around the house and watching TV, basically. It seems to have taken a toll on her overall health. My mom is lazy. She is one of the laziest people on the planet. And perhaps that's why I'm so bothered by this. But that's enough psychoanalyzing myself here. I don't like Christian Holmes. And I just don't like the way that he conducted himself at work. So now you want to know what Christian did next? Not too long after he was hired, he managed to get five of his fraternity bros from Duke jobs at Theranos too, so that they can turn the place into their own personal animal house. So now we have these wannabe professionals consisting of Chris, Jeff, Nick, Dan, Max, and Sani. They all rented a Palo Alto house together, and before long, at work, people started calling them the frat pack. But for purposes of this podcast, we will call them the shat pack. None of these twonky knuckleheads had any relevant background, education, work experience, or skills beyond possibly being able to do a semi-decent keg stand. And that's probably debatable. But hey, Elizabeth doesn't have much of a background in all this either, right? But at the very least, these dum-dums finish school, so there's that. And you know what sucks the most about it is that because one of them is the boss's brother, all of them basically catapulted leaps and bounds above all other Theranos employees as soon as they were hired. And I totally do not have a problem with people helping others. I've said that already when it comes to finding jobs or putting in a good word. I'm not even opposed to nepotism as long as a new recruit does their job and does it well even if they don't necessarily have experience in the field, as long as it isn't something super specialized like a Theranos scientist or chemist. The gentleman from NASA, Greg Bainey, he had been recruited from fellow former NASA guy, Kent Frankovich. Well, Greg recruited a few people also, two friends from when he went to Georgia Tech, Jordan Carr and Ted Pascoe, as well as another NASA buddy, Trey Howard. I don't have a catchy name for them, so I'll just call them the NASA Pack to distinguish the two sets of friends. The NASA Pack, along with the Shat Pack, worked in product management, but they didn't even come close to having the same status or access to information or even department meetings, particularly in regards to working with Walgreens and Safeway. Whenever the Shat Pack had meetings with Sonny and Elizabeth, the NASA Pack were totally excluded, which is lame because, first of all, they're the NASA guys. I mean, hello, how are they supposed to do their jobs if they're not even privy to the meetings? And among all the things wrong with Theranos, the toxicity of the work environment here is like next level. 
And I've often sat here and wondered if the company was managed by people who were more sane and competent than Sonny and Elizabeth, if they would have actually been able to come up with a product that worked. Because let's face it, Sonny and Elizabeth, whatever their strengths were, they had absolutely no idea how to manage people. And the way the Shat Pack got it good with Sonny and Elizabeth was that they spent many hours at Theranos. And I'm not saying that all those hours were spent working. And I bet the farm, if I had a farm, that a lot of time was spent just BSing and dicking around in between pretending to work. They knew how Sonny was. He obsessed over how dedicated and loyal employees were by measuring the amount of time that they spent inside the building. But if nothing else, Sonny definitely didn't put up with any kind of goofing off. So he'd spend a great amount of time watching people from the conference room, the walls of which were made completely out of glass. So he had a full view of everybody's cubicle. You remember back on December 31st when Betty White sadly passed away and then some of her most memorable moments started streaming online again? Up to that point, I had not seen the one with her and Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds when they were promoting their 2009 movie, The Proposal. And they did this video where Betty is treating Ryan like her lowly assistant. And she was like, when Betty White says she wants a cup of coffee, you get her a cup of coffee, you ab crunching jackass. I totally love that. And it's absolutely the next thing that I wanted to call the Shat Pack when I read up on their love of going to the gym. Ab crunching jackass pack. Because they had spent so many hours at Theranos, it left little time for them to be stood up at the gym. So they'd actually sneak out of the Theranos building in the middle of the workday to go work out. They'd dip out from various exits and they'd never come and go at the same time. In fact, Ted Pasco of the NASA pack. He was one of the guys in their department who wasn't in the know about anything and was hired on. And then he had little to no work to do for some reason. So he entertained himself by watching the shot pack come and go thinking that they were being so slick, which is something I could totally see myself doing as well. And to illustrate just where the shot pack were versus where the NASA pack were, Carrie Rue described a discussion that they had with one another. He wrote, Several members of the frat pack joined Greg and two of his colleagues in engineering for a lunch on the big terrace overlooking the parking lot one day. A discussion about the low IQs of some of the world's top soccer players led them to debate the question, Would you rather be smart and poor or dumb and rich? The engineers all chose smart and poor, while the frat pack voted unanimously for dumb and rich. Greg was struck by how clearly the line was drawn between the two groups. They were all in their mid to late 20s with good educations, but they valued different things. The shat pack turned out to be Elizabeth's and Sonny's little gophers that were always ready, willing, and able to be at their beck and call. Eventually, NASA PAC member Greg Bainey suddenly found himself on the outs with Elizabeth in May of 2011. He had only been at the job for a few months by then. You see, he told his sister, who worked for an accounting firm, to try and apply for a job at Theranos. 
She did, and she had an interview with both Elizabeth and Sunny the month before. When they called her back with an offer to join the Shat Pack and the NASA Pack in production management, she declined. Little did she or Greg know how much this would impact his experience at Theranos. Suddenly, Greg was completely ignored by Elizabeth, as if he was invisible when before he had been one of her favorites. Normally, Elizabeth would greet him every day, especially when he came in on Saturdays, like he had been since he started. A week later, he found himself excluded from the weekly meetings Elizabeth would have with him and Kent Frankovich. It was then he realized Elizabeth was taking it personally that her job offer to his sister had been turned down. Elizabeth's iciness eventually fell upon Kent Frankovich as well. He was the one who had recruited Greg. And this is one of the most interesting examples of Elizabeth and Sonny's vast assortment of bullying tactics that we've seen, at least in my opinion. So Ken is essentially the man behind the design of the mini lab, as he was quite a brilliant engineer, a job he enjoyed very much. In addition to working at Theranos, he had a project of his own that involved bicycle lights that lit up its wheels and the surface that the rider was on, which would make the cyclist safer and easier to see at night. He showcased his idea on crowdfunding site Kickstarter, and it was a hit. He raised $215,000 in a month and a half, making it the seventh largest amount anyone raised in 2011. Well, in wanting to share his excitement over his Kickstarter success, he told Elizabeth the news. Big mistake. In bad blood, it said, He badly miscalculated. Elizabeth and Sonny were furious. They viewed it as a major conflict of interest and asked him to transfer his bike lights patent to Theranos. The paperwork Kent had signed when he joined the company entitled them to any intellectual property that he produced while employed there. They contended. Kent disagreed. He had worked on his little venture during his free time and felt he had done nothing wrong. He also failed to see how a new type of bicycle light posed a threat to a maker of blood testing equipment. But Sonny and Elizabeth wouldn't let it go. In meeting after meeting, they tried to get him to turn over the patent. They ratcheted up the pressure by bringing in Theranos' senior counsel, David Doyle, to some of the meetings. So as Greg watched all of this drama with his friend, he was pretty sure this really wasn't about Kent's bicycle lights invention, but rather what they saw as his audacity to be dedicating his time to anything outside of Theranos. Remember, Elizabeth had always been a bit peeved off about the fact that Kent refused to work on Saturdays like Greg had done. But Greg was only doing that because of a breakup. If things in his personal life were good, and he was seeing someone, and everything was all honky-dory, he'd probably want to spend the weekends with said person. And really, Kent was using his weekends to work on his bike lights. He wasn't on company time. What Elizabeth demanded from her employees was 100% and then some, particularly when it came to some of her most needed ones, and Kent was one of those due to the fact that he was a central person in designing and engineering the mini lab. 
Yet instead of inviting him and the NASA PAC to the product management meetings with Sonny and Elizabeth, they opted to invite the Shat PAC instead. How is that supposed to make the NASA guys feel when the frat bromies have more access to important stuff than they did? Well, eventually they sort of reached quite an unstable feeling agreement. Kent could go ahead and take some time off to work on his bike project. And once he was finished, they could discuss the possibility of him returning to Theranos and what the terms of that potential return would be. So it didn't really sound all that promising. But now with Kent gone, Elizabeth had a poo-poo, boo-hoo attitude. And in order to make up for Kent's absence, she turned up the pressure on Greg and his team to fill his shoes. He felt like there was all this desperation and imperativeness emanating from both Elizabeth and Sonny, as if they needed to have the mini lab up and running within a certain time frame. But they all had no idea what that time frame was or what the time frame was for. That's how oblivious these two kept their employees. Greg didn't know what was going on, but he could tell that they were obligated to something or someone. And the strain of the pressure from Elizabeth fell mostly on Greg. At their meetings, she never spoke first. She would sit there, stone-faced, unblinking, deadpan. It was so uncomfortable. She also lingered around him like a helicopter parent whenever he was working to a point where she even confronted him about feeling a sense of cynicism oozing from him. She sensed it. He didn't even have to say anything. I don't find Elizabeth to be a particularly perceptive person, so the cynicism must have been exploding off of Greg like fireworks. He quickly came up with an excuse that he was kind of disappointed about some of the recent applicants that they had interviewed who weren't offered jobs, even though he thought that they had good qualifications. Elizabeth bought it and she lightened up a little bit, but she told him that he needed to communicate these things to her. At the end of 2011, a number of buses were hired to take Theranos employees, about 100 of them, to Fogarty Winery for the company Christmas party. And it was a place that Elizabeth really enjoyed. And at this Christmas party, Queen Elizabeth did her favorite thing in the world. She gave this big monologue about how great Theranos' vision is. And if you aren't with her, then get the F out, stating the mini lab is the most important thing humanity has ever built. If you don't believe this is the case, then you should leave now. Everyone needs to work as hard as humanly possible to deliver it. So I'm going to resoundingly disagree with that statement, though it gives you a glimpse into Elizabeth's obtuse thinking and how pretentious and grandiose she is. The most important thing that humanity ever built? First of all, there's nothing new about blood testing. She did not invent or discover anything that already hadn't existed. Secondly, I hardly think that this was to be the greatest thing ever built by humanity. In fact, when you look up history's greatest inventions, they are the printing press, the electric light, the automobile, the telephone, radio, 
television, vaccinations, computers, airplanes, the gas-powered tractor, and anesthesia. And thirdly, it never happened. Maybe she thought it would if she could just keep up the charade long enough for Theranos engineers, scientists, and chemists to get there, but they never would, especially not in the way that she managed Theranos with fear, threats, intimidation, demoralization, bullying, secrecy, and lies. So Greg and his buddy Trey were sitting there listening to all this fooey. They knew Elizabeth thought that she was just like the cat's pajamas, right? That she envisioned herself to be the next Marie Curie, the person who pioneered radioactive research, the first woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize, and the only woman to ever win it twice. That she was going to be remembered in history as that Elizabeth Holmes who revolutionized the world of medicine. Yeah, no, sorry, honey. Maybe she can learn a trade in federal prison, like cooking or plumbing. The pay starts at about 10 cents an hour, perhaps a couple of pennies more. She could start looking into that. A month and a half later, this is now February of 2012, all of the employees were bussed back to the winery, the same winery, for more of Elizabeth and Sonny's grandstanding, another self-congratulatory affair. This time, the occasion was finalizing the partnership with Safeway, at which point the company should get ready to change its name to Unsafeway because if anybody gets bushwhacked by an Edison or a Minilab, whatever they're calling it, People's health and their lives are going to quite possibly be jeopardized. Elizabeth speechified to everyone just under an hour, which I think would totally suck to have to listen to her blab on and on and try to pretend to be listening. I don't think I could do it. But anyway, she finished off by telling everybody that she wasn't afraid of anything except for needles and getting one of Sunny's chest hair stuck in her teeth. She also said that Theranos was on pace to become the dominant, most preeminent company in the land of silicon. Oh, and by the way, of all the words that I make up, speechified is actually one that I found online that seems to be real. And it feels like such a kooky word. So you know that this podcast host writes her own stuff. I know you all can rest easy now. It's no shock to any of us that Greg was at the end of his rope with Theranos and he was ready to resign. He was just going to wait for his stocks to vest, which was set to happen in a couple of months on his first anniversary. And what that means is that he's going to own his stock options at that point. He pretty much realized that he couldn't do it anymore after he represented Theranos at a job fair at his alma mater and was totally incapable of saying anything good about Theranos. He could not in good conscience recommend the company as an excellent place to work. He just gave tips about having a career in the Silicon Valley. The biggest problem among a super abundance of problems to Greg was the fact that Sonny and Elizabeth won't pull their damn heads out of their asses and see that what they have on their hands is only a prototype. Yet they're trying to pass it off as the real deal. Like a $100 pair of blue Gucci shoes at the Slauson Swap Meet in South Los Angeles. By the way, I googled knockoff Gucci man shoes and I found Sunny's favorite blue shoes in this velvet house slipper form with fur top lines. 
And I'm pretty certain that people who wear those shoes regularly probably get punched in the face a lot. The bottom line with the mini lab is that they needed much more time to work out all the bugs in the thing, and it needed to go through several rounds of prototyping and testing. But Sunny had already ordered the parts for 100 machines to be patterned after the prototype. Carrie Rue wrote, It was as if Boeing built one plane without doing a single flight test and told passengers to hop aboard. Another major problem with the mini lab had to do with the temperature. We talked about ambient temperatures in the last part, but that was with the Edison. And this goes even beyond that. The mini lab was so small with so many moving parts inside that it brings about variations in the temperature that could have an unwanted effect on the chemistry and throw off the process and the results. Both Sunny and Elizabeth just kept thinking that things are as simple as telling people what they wanted and that the people would just make it happen. Rarely are things that simple. Progress was not being made in a timely manner acceptable to Sonny, so he began questioning Greg's ability and drive to a point where Greg, who is about twice the size of Sonny, stood up, dwarfing him, and shouted that they were working their asses off. And it's the first time or one of the first times that I know of where Sonny actually stood down. We are going to close this episode out with a couple more anecdotes about Sonny that demonstrate how oppressive he was, how much he bullied employees. In order to avoid Sonny, some of the employees often gathered in the basement warehouse area of the building where Theranos' supply chain manager, John Fanzio, worked. It was sort of their secret little place that wasn't being constantly surveilled by Sonny so they could relax and talk or vent frustrations or discuss any rumors or gossip that anybody heard. John and the NASA pack had become pretty good friends and they really leaned on one another to get through some of the maddening things that they had to deal with when it came to Elizabeth and Sonny. While John's place really should not have had him in the bowels of the building, he actually came to appreciate it because it wasn't possible for Sonny to spy on him or count the minutes from the time that he arrived to the time that he left each day. Sonny had become completely consumed with the amount of hours each person worked and measured their value as an employee based almost exclusively on that. But it was inevitable, like for all Theranos employees, that John would find himself disappeared, banished into the pit. And it happened in February of 2012. One of his co-workers who worked in receiving had purchased a brand new Acura. That day when he arrived at work with it for the first time, John went outside to the parking lot to check it out and to tell him it was a really nice car and to congratulate him. You know, getting a brand new car is a really big accomplishment and the guy was proud, you know. Well, the very next day when that employee was fixing to leave, he came out to the parking lot to find a large dent in the side of it. Someone pulling out of an adjacent parking spot had turned too sharply or turned too soon and hit it. So, you know, he was really upset. Any of us would be. I would probably start crying. And nobody had come into the building to report that they had hit the car Nobody had left a note. 
essentially, it was a hit and run. Well, John decided to help out his co-worker by trying to look at the other cars in the parking lot to see if any of them looked like they had any damage that matched up with the location of the dent on the Acura. He found a car that had a scrape, so he took a tape measure to see if that car's bumper lined up with the damage and it was a perfect match. Well, it just so happened to belong to a friend of Sonny's, an Indian gentleman who was hired to work in the software department. So when John saw the Indian man go outside for a smoke, he went out there to question him about hitting the Acura, but the man denied it. So John told his coworker that his only recourse was to file a police report about the hit and run and to tell them about how the damage of the two cars matched up, how they found this evidence. This Indian man went crying and complaining to Sonny about being accused of hitting a car in the parking lot. And that is when the shit hit the fan again. Sonny came storming down into the warehouse in such a rage that he was visibly trembling. He got into John's face and screamed that if he wants to play cop, then go play cop. At that point, he snapped at a member of the security staff to get John out of the building. Another indentured Theranos employee bites the dust. And Greg, who had really come to like John, was pretty shook over the firing. And it only confirmed for him that his decision to leave was the right one. One month after John's termination, Greg had reached his breaking point. One of the younger engineers in his department had accidentally damaged a couple of electrical boards that were a part of the mini lab. Here comes Supreme Leader Sonny flying off the handle once again. He became engaged in a knockdown, drag out hissy fit, ordering Greg and a colleague of his named Tom Brummett to disclose who it was that burned up the electrical boards. Being protective of the young man, they both refused to reveal his identity because they knew that Sonny would disappear him. Sonny was so off the deep end and so outrageously bent out of shape over this that it was all Greg could take. His one-year anniversary had just passed, his stocks vested, so that very same day that this incident with the electrical boards happened, he went into Sonny's office and turned in his resignation letter. Shortly afterwards, Sonny wanted to speak to the rest of Greg's NASA pack to see where they stood with everything. And they told Sonny that they were not affected by Greg's resignation and intended to continue working as faithfully as ever at Theranos. Whether or not that was true, we can't say for sure. But they knew that that was what Sonny needed to hear or else he'd make their lives miserable too or he would disappear them. And in a show that Elizabeth was right there on board with Sonny in her own vindictive little ways, on Greg's final Saturday at work, everyone gathered at an enormous manufacturing plant and warehouse that Theranos leased for the production of the mini lab in mass quantities. And they were there to be introduced to the building and for Elizabeth to give another one of her speeches 
But this time, Greg could feel that Elizabeth Stare was cutting into him when she stated, If anyone here believes you are not working on the best thing humans have ever built, or if you are cynical, then you should just leave. She also made it a point to heap on some extra love and adoration for the rest of Greg's NASA pack as a way of publicly admonishing him one last time. Finally, I'm going to tell you about one more employee who also made his way down into the banishment pit of former Theranos employees. This time, it was a pretty large fellow, a burly guy named Del Barnwell, affectionately referred to as Big Del. And to me, it kind of sounds like something you'd find on a menu at Del Taco. Before working at Theranos as a software engineer, Big Del was a helicopter pilot in the Marine Corps. And Sonny had gone about watching Big Dell's comings and goings each day, the time that he arrived for work and the time that he left. And for shame, it amounted to eight hours each day. The nerve of this guy, right? So in a meeting, Sonny said to Big Dell something to the effect that he watched surveillance footage of several of his work days and it showed a clear pattern of him working eight hour days. And Sonny followed that up by telling this imposing former Marine that he was going to fix him in his cushy little office, in his cushy little blue shoes, right? I'd like to see Sonny fix up Big Dell in a bar or in a dark alley where he'd be free to swat Sonny away like the pesky little gnat that he is. Well, Big Dell, he was out. Shortly after that I'm going to fix you meeting, Dell sent in his resignation via email to Elizabeth's executive assistant. But for the next two weeks as he finished out his time, he didn't hear anything from either Elizabeth or Sonny. On his final day, he packed up his stuff and he headed towards the parking lot. It was then that Sonny and Elizabeth came flying down the stairs into the lobby to stop him. He would not be allowed to leave until he read and signed the two NDAs, the non-disclosure and the non-defamatory agreements. Big Dell was like, I signed that when I started working here. Get out of my way. I'm out. And for some reason, as I was reading this, I pictured Big Dell doing that soul train strut out the front door as he reminded the two of them that he gave his notice two weeks ago and they had all this time for that hogwash and he basically told them, in not so many words, to kiss his ass. Big Dell continued on. He got into his SUV. And as he was driving off, Sonny tried to send security to stop him. But Dell just kept on trucking. So you all want to know what Sonny's stupid little punk ass did next? He called the cops. The actual police. I don't know if he called 911 or not, but when the police showed up about 20 minutes later and this officer, he drove into the parking lot all casual and slow, no lights, no sirens, rolling his eyes the whole way over there. He probably took one look at Sonny and knew that this was some bullshit call. Sonny flagged down the officer and started making a big fuss. One of their employees had quit and took some company property with him when he left. And the cop asked what the employee took. And Sonny shouted, he stole property in his mind. 
<laughs> and dreamers, I wish I saw the look on this cop's face. And I wish I knew what he said back, but I don't. And in bad blood, Carrie Rue just ended the incident like that. And I am mad at it. That's all the details I have on that story. If anybody out there in the world has any more details about this incident, I would love to know it. What happened with the cop? What did he say to Sonny? What did he do? Did he get mad? I wish he would have given him a ticket for wasting his time or something. But anyway, I will go ahead and end part four with that. Sonny Balwani, the mess that keeps on messing, right? Well, when we come back for part five, we are going to get into that much anticipated deal with Safeway grocery stores. And we're also going to get into how the idea of implementing the mini lab blood testing system into the United States military all came about. So don't forget to come over to Facebook if you aren't already a member of our discussion group and request to join. We're getting close to 2000 members. So maybe I'll just have a little bit of a giveaway to celebrate finally reaching that milestone. You can also follow the show on Instagram and Twitter. And I do have a topic for the next Patreon episode ready to go. So I'm going to head over to work on that next. So patrons, keep your eyes on the feed for that. If you're still deciding on whether or not to join Patreon, just remember it's only a dollar a month and it helps me out because that's my only podcast income. You get lots of exclusive stuff with much, much more to come. I'm going to get back to my thank you cards very soon. I got all caught up in October and November. So if you've joined since then, I haven't forgotten about it. I've just feel like I've been busier lately than I usually am. I think it has to do with maybe my mom and I've taken three trips to California in the last two months and the babysitting job that I've taken. But I'm hanging in there doing this with you all is my favorite so stay tuned for part five and for February's Patreon. I'm your host, Roseanne. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>